Good morning, and welcome to the lectionary podcast. Um, we uh, this is a podcast discussion for February twenty eighth, and um, in this episode, we're going to focus on the lectionary gospel reading for Sunday, March third. Some background: uh, this podcast started about fifteen years ago as a digital descendant of the Palmasia Presbyterian Lectionary Sunday School class that was taught by Bill Wallace for many years. Um, the podcast team usually includes lay people and seminarians, and we are working to be consistent and faithful to lectionary calendar year B. And here's how it works. Um, each week, one of us kicks off this, the planning process by sharing or posing three questions. And then we gather on Tuesday around 6.30 a.m., where our little team will uh, take up to 50 minutes each week to share what we've uncovered in our independent study. And the people joining me today are... Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. Lily Ryder in uh, Sefner, Florida. John Deboboys in Tampa, Florida. And this week our guest is Loli Ryder. And thank you for joining us. It's nice to have you with us. Um, our passage this week, and I happen to be the facilitator, I'm Sarah, and I'm in Tampa. Um, our passage this week is John, in the book of John. So we've, we've, we've abandoned Mark for a week and moved to the book of John. We're looking at chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle, and he poured out all the coins from the money changers, and he overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the, the Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in just three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone. For he himself knew what was in everyone. And that's the end of our scripture reading for this morning. Um, this is a familiar story for me. I, I'm, I'm going to guess it might be for everybody else too. And I was trying to make connections or, or bring some continuity to the conversation we had last week, which was in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, which is where John, the, the, the conversation of who are, who do people say that I am? And Peter, you know, strikes a, a, 
a, a moment of clarity and says, you're the Messiah. And then the very next paragraph, he's inviting Jesus to reconsider his decision to go to Jerusalem and, um, and is rebuked by Jesus. And, uh, and it is, you hear the words, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind on divine things, not on divine things, but on human things. And so I was trying to make some connections between the passage in John and the passage in Mark that we stayed last week. So what connections do you see or make between last week's reading and this week's reading? Bill, can you help me out? We'll see. <laughs> First of all, I, I appreciate your question, Sarah, looking for connections. We've discussed at times, sometimes we are mystified by how the developers of the lectionary put things together. And your question in, uh, empowered, invited me to do some reflection, and I will share briefly the what your question sparked in me. As you've noted, last week was from Mark, this week is from John, and the next two weeks are also from the Gospel of John. And what I came up with was the, the thread is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Last week, Peter understood that he was the Messiah and then demonstrated he did not really understand because he wanted Jesus not to speak of suffering. <clears throat> I think, again, this week, it has to do with understanding who the Messiah is, what his mission is. We noted in our pre-recording that the synoptics, all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place this event during the last week before Jesus' crucifixion. John places it early. I think because John is wanting to make crystal clear the tension between the human expectations of the Messiah and who Jesus really was and is and what his ministry is about. In this week's, I think the clarification comes in Jesus's anger in the temple. Uh, yesterday, our pastors in, what do you call it, first look at the lectionary, something like that, uh, they uh, appropriately dealt with this issue of anger. Is, is Jesus sinning here? Uh, you know, elsewhere in Scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. I don't think Jesus is sinning. I think he is demonstrating that injustice engenders anger and action from God as represented in the Messiah. Um, the remaining two weeks uh, in the Gospel of John, we will look at the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus again then calling his disciples to be servants and to lose themselves. Currently in the adult faith formation class at Palmasia, led by Marsha Rydberg, it's on ancient heresies. And she helpfully reminds us that heresies develop within the circle of faith. These are not unbelievers. These are believers who are attempting to mitigate a, a struggle. For example, uh, docetism, 
they denied the humanity of Jesus. They were trying to uh, undo the mystery of how God can be holy, other, and divine, and yet be human by denying it. So that I think, uh, and I'll end with this, I think we are all heretics in some way. There's something in the gospel we want to soften. So we need to be careful of being critical of Peter last week. Uh, because, the again, the issue is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? What kind of disciple, uh, uh, Messiah is he? And again, thank you for the question, Sarah. Thank you, Bill. Um, John, what are your thoughts? What, what connections do you make between last week's reading and this one? Three. I hope I can remember them here. <laughs> one is, I think in last week's reading in Mark, it's the first place in Mark where Jesus speaks about the Son of Man rising in three days from the dead. Mm-hmm. While, you know, it's not what the disciples hear, they fixate on what he says about suffering and being killed. Um, he says it there. I think that's the first place where Jesus says the Son of Man in, in three days will rise from the dead. So he here he speaks of rising from the dead in three days. They miss it again. They think he's speaking about the temple, but obviously the text says he's speaking about the temple of his body. So that's a parallel between the two. Mm-hmm. The second parallel looks to me like it's about the zeal or the anger. In Mark 8, when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, <laughs> um, it, 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 he is either zealous or angry there. And that's an uh, interesting exploration mm-hmm. of how, how the two of those um, are different and how they're alike, zeal and anger. Um, but, but I think he's, he, he, he speaks with zeal or anger in Mark 8 uh, to Satan, and here he acts in zeal or anger um, and is overturning the temple. And then um, he speaks also here, in, in, the, in Mark 8, they begin their march to Jerusalem. And in John 2, he's, he's in, he starts in Jerusalem. Um, John gets you, as we have said in our words earlier, to Jerusalem much faster. But he's here in Jerusalem. Those all three seems, seem to be um, parallels to me in between the two passages. Thank you, John. Lowly, what about you? What connections might you make between Mark 8 and John, the second chapter? Well, a number of them have been made, and definitely the introductory nature of it. I, I will admit, John is not my favorite. So it was the first time that I really dug in, and it's like, oh, wait a second. And, and I would love to have been there when he was writing and somehow saw, well, these guys used it here. But I'm going to use it here. You know, I'm going to use it as kind of his introductory um, uh, who is Jesus. And and in my digging, one of the, you know, and, and in our talks about zeal and, and anger, first and foremost, you know, I'm, I'm one that appreciates a good kung fu movie, good action movie. So there's something about this passage that has always drawn me in. Um and I also am a firm believer that, you know, emotions are not good or bad and that anger is not a bad thing. It just is. Um, the sin comes from what we do with it. 
So when somebody posed a question, I think it might have been Mark Davis, but that did Jesus come into the temple with the intention of cleaning house or did he get there and, you know, he was like moved by, he, he felt uh, that zeal or that anger, um, which, you know, and, and I tried to see if other people commented on that, but I, I never heard one way or the other. Um, but that, you know, I guess the as an introductory kind of saying, here's who Jesus is, almost like the new temple, when you think of what went on in the temple. Um, this is part of when, to your question, to me, this was part of that answer. So who do you say that I am? Um, because when we think of what went on in the temple, what the temple meant to the people, well, all that was going to be a lot of what Jesus was here for. And he was cleaning house and taking, this is my, you know, um, this is no longer, um, necessary kind of thing, but Thank you. (laughs) So um, I connected the story to the the bit from verses 34 through 38 in Mark 8, where it talks about if anybody wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's almost like we have this ability to flash from Mark 8 to John 2. If, if, you know, I'm thinking of um, a film director being able to cut away to a separate scene and go, and here's what it looks like when people um, don't do that. And so we get this, you know, image, the, the if you will, the, the lights come up on the temple and we see Jesus entering the temple. And so I'm wondering if this temple setting is an example of what happens when we set our mind not on divine things, but on human things. So this commerce of, of the, the money changers in the temple and the cattle and the sheep and the doves all being there, it, it, had, it had been, if you will, the idea of let's make it easier on the pilgrims coming in to uh, buy their sacrifice here, exchange money here. We're going to get, a, a you know, I'm sure the temple decision makers were, like, well, maybe we'll charge a little bit more for the booths inside the temple so that um, we can make a little bit more money. It would line our pockets and then it'll be easier on the pilgrims coming in. So the sense of convenience becoming primary to the process of the temple and not what the temple was designed for. And then I'm, I guess my next point was, uh, was Jerusalem co-opted by people like Peter who were thinking first about their personal benefits and what would make it easier um, than how they might better, how they might even know better than God mm. on what people needed when they came to the temple. So I, I recognize that there's this level of commerce happening, that these things are somewhat necessary to the people that are coming into the temple. Um, maybe the conversation is objectionable to Jesus because that has superseded the primary purpose of the temple. And so it feels a little bit, a little bit like this week's passage might be a living example of what Jesus talks about in Mark 8, verses 34 through 38 to me. Hmm. And how probably innocent it started, but then how corrupting it became. 
so um, that kind of look and feel, and uh, not that that happens in my life ever, especially, you know, a, a really easy example would be you get a splinter in your hand, and it doesn't hurt initially, but a day on, it's right there, and it's telling you it's it's painful, and I need to work on getting it out, and and so it's that small element of um, corruptibility that comes with commerce sometimes. My second question um, is, how is the cleansing of the temple a metaphor for the forgiveness of sin and grace that Jesus is preaching and bringing into the world? And John, I'm going to come to you for this one first. It's a, I think it's a big one. <laughs> big well, question. I, I'm not sure you'll be glad you chose me first, Sarah, because I feel myself called the channel, uh, the directness of our friend Charles Willard a little bit, and to say... With respect to how is the cleansing of the temple a metaphor, it's not. <laughs> you know, I I, I, I don't experience it um, as a metaphor uh, in my reading of it, which is the humbler and probably more accurate thing to say. But um, so it's 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 only um, in the question that my mind wrestles with that, and particularly a metaphor for the forgiveness of sin and the grace. Um I, I think that um, there is a uh, authenticity to this story um, because of its vividness and um, the details around it, and the fact that um, all four of the Gospels not only include it, but are close in terms of their description of what happens there. That, 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 that makes us say this was a very powerful moment and memory in the life of the Christian community, in terms of the life of Jesus. But this happened, and they were still trying to figure it out afterwards. I bet it scared them. Um, I would have been afraid if I had been there, that I was going to get arrested for just hanging with this guy. Have uh, <laughs> you ever been with a friend who starts to um, act out or misbehave in some way, and you end up uh, suddenly being afraid that you could end up being lumped in with him into the consequences? As I read it, I experience it as that kind of uh, moment for the disciples. So if if they come to reflection on what it said to them about the forgiveness of sin and God's grace, I think that's only in retrospect as everything that they look back on in the life of Jesus is perfected in reflection for them into Scripture. But I think it's more, I, I, I experience it that it comes would come more as a metaphor for the reality that um, in, in becoming Lord of our lives, Christ overturns a lot of tables in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are things that get disrupted um, about the past order and things that we were quite content with and things that seem to be very functional. Uh, and that that disruption is a part of what's going to happen. And that may be akin to... Uh, the Mark 8, he began to teach them that they would be suffering and arrested and uh, killed. Um, that that disruption um, is, it comes as suffering or a consequence at times is a reality too. Thank you, John. Um, Lily, what are your thoughts? Um, I, you know, I think it's interesting because where this question took me, and, and again, that question that, that Mark Davis posed about did Jesus come in with the intent or 
did he get overtaken, you know, by emotion there? Um, because I, I thought of, you know, you've got that drawer where you have all the tech you don't need anymore, like the flip phone and the Blackberry and sometimes even the beeper. Um, that's where I went in terms of these things were no longer needed. You know, these sacrifices, these in terms of forgiveness of sins and and what the purpose of of, of these things were in the temple, which was to. Um, offer these so that sins could be forgiven and things like that. Um, these were no longer needed. No, you know, and so it's, again, I just see this vision of Jesus saying, yeah, no, that's clean house. You know, it's like, um, it, it's let's, cause this is no longer needed. I'm here. I'm here. Um, and yeah, like John said, yeah, cause exactly. Uh, if somebody did that, in our house of worship, you know, like if somebody came in and started, uh, we don't need to sell this at church or, you know, uh, that that's scary. Um, and for those for whom this has been tradition and this has been the comfortable way that we do it to all of a sudden rip it out. Um, but that's, that's kind of where I went that again, trying to decide was Jesus coming in with intent or not, but almost like, these, with regards to forgiveness of sins, these will no longer be needed. I'm here. I'm here. Thank you. Um, I like the notion that we might be the temple in need of cleansing mm-hmm. and liberation. Um, that in our zeal to improve our lives, we have bartered and negotiated ourselves away from holiness. Mm. The illusion of being all things to all people has led us to hide the truthfulness of our own vulnerabilities and um and how much we need each other so i wonder in in what ways i have undermined what is that which is holy by standing by and permitting someone else to convert it into something less than holy much worse i wonder if i have diminished somebody else's holiness by treating them like um, something other than the child of god so what if the temple the holy place where God lives and interacts with us, where we meet Emmanuel, occurs when we encounter Christ in the form of another. And in truth, it's in my heart that Je- it's my heart that Jesus is cleaning from earthly things and distractions that I've moved into the space that solely belongs to God. So I kind of took it in that direction that that there's twofold things going on. First, I have to. I have to declutter (laughs) and I have to elect what I'm going to keep in the temple where God lives. If, if I have any choice at all, I don't know that I do. I think that maybe um, a mighty wind needs to come through or a flood to, uh, to tidy up the stuff that I've drug in thinking it's necessary and needed when it's not. So that's why I touched on the idea of the temple cleansing being a metaphor because that's the the ultimate forgiveness and grace that I receive. What do you think, Bill? I, I just double checked in my edition of the New Revised Standard Version. In all four Gospels, the title is the cleansing of the temple, but that word does not occur in this scripture passage, hmm. and so it's added by a modern day uh, editor. Now, why do I mention that? It. 
listening to the discussion yesterday on the pastor's podcast and today about the uncomfortableness with Jesus being angry, maybe labeling it cleansing is, is an attempt to soften somewhat the, the shock in, in this. I've noted a number of times on this podcast that by personality, I prefer both and. There is no both and in this passage. There is a clear either or. Jesus says, either this is a marketplace or a house of prayer, which I think further clarifies who he is as the Messiah. Uh, I noted in my comments on the first question, uh, injustice angers God and it should anger us. Now, granted, we live in a time when mostly we see anger being used destructively, but anger can be cleansing. Um, For example, in any relationship, just in a marriage, sometimes clearing the air Mm -hmm. is what we need to do, and it can be very uncomfortable. Now, back to your question about uh, grace. It seems to me that Jesus is here focused on removing any barriers between God and people. You don't have to go buy a sacrifice. And we know that there were gradations of that. There were animals that cost less for the poor people and more for the rich people. At least that's my understanding. So while this may not directly relate to grace, it's removing any barriers. And in John's narrative, which we're reading, what precedes this event in the temple is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus spared the host from embarrassment and by turning water into wine, Jesus serving people at their point of need and not doing so for financial profit. Later, we will read that the veil in the temple is torn apart, another barrier removed. Those are my thoughts, Sarah. Thank you, Bill. I will add that I don't think a house gets any cleaner than when a mom is mad. So (laughs) just just saying, you know, just saying. There's some zeal in there. Um, If if, if you want the house to be super clean, watch out. And not that I'm speaking from, you know, some self-confessional moment. Uh, Well, I am. (laughs) (laughs) So in thinking about what the temple represented in the time of Jesus and in the time that John was writing, or the, the author of John was writing, how does Jesus change where God is present? And thank you, Bill, for this edit. And to whom God is present for or to? Um, Loli, what are your thoughts about that? Um, Again, I would go to exactly when you think of the purpose that the temple uh, served. um, Exactly. God was supposed to abide there. And this is where people came to bring the sacrifices uh, for forgiveness. Um, And kind of like I said in the last question, you know, I think that Jesus was saying, no longer is this needed, you know, um, 
and and the fact that it's almost like God was no longer in a building. God was in Emmanuel, you know, in, in fleshed God with us. Um, then that's also shifting the presence of God from just in a, a building, you know, kind of like the song, um, the church is not a, a building, <laughs> you know, it's the people mm-hmm. in, in very much the same way. Now God's presence is not in the building. It's, um, here in the flesh and of Jesus Christ um, and among us and among us. Um, and, and I think it's interesting that um, one of the things I, I, that caught my attention was some parallels. Um, Cause you know, kind of at the end of John and John 20, there's always that very last, the, that verse that says there are many signs, you know, that were done so that people would believe Um and there's some parallel verbiage in this as well that speaks to to this um, in verse 23 um, that many believe because of the signs that Jesus was doing, you know. Um, but yeah, for me, it just has continued to be that maybe John, as opposed to the other three gospels, put it at the beginning to this is who Jesus is, the new uh, presence of God, where God is, the um, in the flesh among us, and the new way to for redemption to happen here on earth. Thank you. Um, I I read Caroline Lewis's WorkingPreacher.org blog, or, or uh, I guess we're writing for March eighth, twenty fifteen, and she says that if the temple symbolizes the location and presence of God. Jesus is essentially saying to the Jewish leaders that he is the presence of God. Mm. And where one looks for God, expects to find God, imagines God to, to be, are all at stake in the Gospel of John. And in Jesus, God is right here, right in front of you, and that Jesus is the revelation of God, the one and only God, um, will be repeated and reinforced with different sets of images and different characters and different directives, all pointing back to this essential truth. Um, so for many in Jerusalem, uh, for so many in Jerusalem, the temple was thought to be where God resided in the world and that the holiest place, it was the holiest place in the holiest of cities. And that there was this collection of barriers already set up to kind of keep people out. Like we had a wall around the city for protection. And then we, um, we had this elements, the elements of that visiting was costly, that it was a significant pilgrimage to go to Passover in Jerusalem, given the kind of expenses that you would encounter. Um, so I, I think of those two things as barriers that humanity has set up that separated people from God. Um, not to mention all the other things about cleanliness and about washing and rinsing and washing and rinsing. Um, and also just the preparation of your heart um, kind of goes along those same lines. Jesus shifts the situation from God being found in a particular location to God being available and accessible to everyone and all by incarnation and grace. Um, that by following Christ, we encounter God in each other and become partners in bringing holiness back to each other. Um, the March 3rd, 2014, WorkingPreacher.org um, entry was written by Dong Hyung 
Zhang, and I'm probably just butchering that name, I apologize. And the quote I liked from his conversation was, in other words, the Gospel of John gives us a glimpse into a Jewish community that is struggling to understand the role of Jesus in their lives after the temple has been destroyed. Mm. And the struggle is found and expressed in John 12, 13 through 22. So I think that the, 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 they're feeling the, the, the gravity and the loss of the temple at this point, and after, as the writer of John is, is sharing this story. And this particular part of scripture brings comfort to them. And so it's this interesting idea that un, without God planning to, or maybe intentionally God planned to, um, take the temple away from them and replace it with Jesus. And that that, that action un, in and of itself was violent and was um, destructive and, and life-rending. And now we have Jesus coming back and becoming the temple um, incarnate. So that those are my thoughts. Um, Bill, what do you think? Um, much of what I noted, uh, you've already, you folks have already said, so I, I won't repeat it, other than my attention was drawn to verse 21, that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Again, you, you both of you have said it well, that, Jesus is ultimately the temple. I have been intrigued for a number of years by the concept that it, my understanding of Scripture is the temple ultimately is not, the physical temple is ultimately not important. Uh, it will go away. Uh, the Samaritan woman conversation in John 4 Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Um, and he was referring to the Samaritans having a different place of worship. And then in Revelations 21, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. Now, as a retired minister, I've always appreciated the physical facilities. The churches I serve, like Palmasia, is open to the community and to serve each other. There's a place for that. Uh, I'm not envisioning destroying church buildings, but ultimately, that's not where we have to meet God. Uh, we can meet God anywhere. <clears throat> And I did a little quick research. Um, according to my sources, Jerusalem is dated back as far as 4500 BCE before the Common Era, or BC if you prefer. And according to my resources, throughout its history, the city has been destroyed at least two times by Babylon and Persia, attacked 52 times, besieged 23 times, and recaptured 44 times. Why would we put our faith in, in the physical structure or place? Physical place does not limit God. And I like the thought, where does God be? In Jesus. Jesus is the temple. And in 1 Corinthians 6, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I love that juxtaposing. Jesus is the temple, and I'm also a temple. 
And then my father's favorite quote from Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in Jesus's name, God is present with us. Um, and to whom, Revelation 21, the nations will walk by its light, its gates will never be shut. And my final comment, God is present to all the world and to everyone. Again, thank you for the question, Sarah. Thank you, Bill. You brought to mind Psalm 139 for me. Mm -hmm. John, what are your thoughts um, about the temple representing what the temple represented and, and, and how does Jesus change where God is present to whom God is present to? Well, I, I would say amen to everything you all have said. Um, you, you've captured it well, and even in your quoting of particular commentators, I think you've lifted up um, the um, cogent points. So to add something that hasn't been said yet, I would say, you know that that um, I think I, I, I find out of this question, verse 19, to be the simple verse, or maybe a central verse, in this pericope with the phrase from Jesus that Jesus said that they remembered these words come out of his mouth. And I, it makes me want to go look at the synoptic versions of the story and see if they include this phrase or do they not destroy this temple. Talk about heresies um, for Jesus to speak that and to speak that in the second chapter of John, destroy this temple um, is, is, um, a blasphemous phrase, right? Uh, to speak it. Um, and so there's power in that, uh, I, I note. And it draws me to that verse um, more so than when I first was approaching the story this time. And the point you're making about, that you're underscoring that in Jesus, the um, locus of the presence of God has moved from temple to Christ Certainly, uh, uh, yes, of course. But we do know what it means, don't we, to encounter God in specific geographical spots or places. We also have holy places, thin places, um, from Montreat to the Sefner Sanctuary, a thin place in my own family system. I mean, we have these thin places that are precious to us. Even Genesis twenty-eight seventeen has... Jacob standing saying, surely this is a holy place. Uh, this is the house of the living God. Um, and so we know that experience um, and we continue it, even on that side of the story. But in our best Christian faith, when that's happening, it's because we're encountering Jesus Christ in those holy places. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking out loud there, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we're saying that is because of our encounter of um, the experience of Matthew 18, when two or three are gathered together, um, there Jesus said, I am present also. So I I find myself pulling the two. I do think you're right in the point, and I don't know if you were quoting the commentators or saying it, but it, it, by, when I say I think it's right, it had occurred to me too that John is speaking here to a particularly tender moment. Um, for Jewish people in first century Palestine with the destruction of the temple in mm -hmm. 70 AD. Um, you know, that's a cataclysmic horror um, uh, for us to have, think about the emotions we would have if our own sanctuary was torn down. 
or if the capital of the United States unthinkable for us, you know, is to be torn down. And so the community grief, national grief about the destruction of the temple, I think it's good for us to get our heads around and for them to remember as comfort in the part of that, that Jesus had said, but the locust had moved. I am the new locust for the presence of the living God before you. I think that would help you in the grief of huge system changes in terms of what was happening in culture and government uh, around them at that time and the uncertainty of it. So did they remember this story in part, all four of them, so forcefully because of the help it brought them in their grief and their even human grief of having to let go of the old physical temple and move forward now into Jesus? And does that parallel what was happening in the synagogue movement um, Mm -hmm. already in, in some way? Um, uh, so that's, that's where my head, uh, goes probably other places too, but that's enough, isn't it? You all said it perfectly well. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, last call for questions or answers to everybody. Anybody want to add? Sarah, let me insert John, while you were talking, I checked. You are correct. It's only the gospel of John that records destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. That That's not in the synoptics. Thank you for that insight. And John's the one written after 70. Right. Yeah. That's a powerful phrase, isn't it? Destroy this temple. <laughs> yeah. And coupled with, in three days I will raise it up. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right, so um, just for everybody listening in, um, Palmasia Presbyterian Church sponsors this podcast and makes it possible. And um, that church is located at 3501 West San Jose in Tampa, Florida. Um, For more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A dot O-R-G. The website hosts a number of interesting ways to connect to what's going on at our church whether it's Sunday school lessons that are captured there, whether it's podcasts or conversations that are captured there, you can see um, historic and, and live uh, worship services as well as just the glorious music that happens um, frequently at our church. So uh, I invite you to visit and, uh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>